As of now in early 2021, Twig is hiring. If you think Twig is the kind of company for which you would enjoy working and you want to work with Haskell, Rust, Scala, or Bazel, then please see the Twig jobs page at twig.io slash careers. Hello, this is the Compositional Podcast. I'm Robin Bateborup. On this episode, my guest is Doug. Doug, will you please say your full name and tell us about yourself? Sure. Thanks, Robin. Happy to be here. Uh, I'm Doug Beardsley. Um, I have been in functional programming for a while now, 10, 10 11 years full-time and, and uh, probably a few years before that part-time. And uh, I'm currently director of engineering at Kadena. And most of the things that I'm interested in are uh, in the domain of applying functional programming and specifically Haskell most of the time to, to real world projects and commercial, commercial software to try to leverage its benefits in, in uh, production systems. Yeah, thanks. So I, I know that you have sort of another identity online. Is there anything you want to mention about ah, that? Ah, yes. I am Mighty Byte in a number of online forums. That may be uh, a name that people are more familiar with. Indeed. That's kind of a big deal. We got Mighty Byte on the show here. All right. So, Doug, you know um, what my interests are in terms of having you on the show. I'm very interested to hear about the story of what brought you to functional programming. Can you tell that story? Absolutely. So I've been been programming since I was a kid and it's it's kind of uh, just the, the thing I knew I wanted to do as soon as I was introduced to it. And then mid 2000s, I was recently out of college working at my first software job we were using Java for most things. And that was actually, I, I got into a fairly innovative team at the time. Java was the new and hot thing, or, or maybe not hot actually in this. I was working for a defense contractor, Northrop Grumman, huge, huge company, hundreds of thousands of employees. And Java was, was uh, not the, the, the common thing. Most people were doing C++. And so we were kind of innovative and, and breaking ground with our use of Java at the time. And I, I had a few coworkers who were proponents of Java. And so, so we used that and we built a large scale system for doing data fusion of multiple different uh, information streams from different kinds of sensors. And our main concern was performance. And we, it was also a research project we had very long timelines and not tight budget constraints. And so we were, we were just exploring a bunch of different speculative performance, increasing things we might be able to do. And there, there came upon an idea of let's try to dramatically refactor this system so that um, we, instead of using a, a very mutable approach where we have this large in-memory data structure and we're mutating it, we were contemplating the possibility of changing the algorithm to use 
at the time we we referred to it as a read copy update approach so read all your all of your uh data in um make copies of it do whatever modifications you need to on the copy so you you avoid thread contention because we were we were substantially parallelized and then you know, essentially compare and swap that information back in. Or if it's not a single compare and swap uh, instruction, then, you know, some kind of similarly fast operation. And I was I was thinking about how to do this. And by that time, I had gotten to the point where I knew that the code base was 150,000 lines of Java or so. And I had gotten to the point where I knew that I couldn't trust myself to get it all right. If, if I embarked on this enormous refactoring, I, I knew that I was going to screw some stuff up and it was going to take a long, long time to run down all of the resulting bugs. And so I wanted, I wanted to be able to enforce that I didn't accidentally mutate the wrong thing. And Java just didn't give me a good way to do that. And the, the conclusion of that small anecdote is that we ended up not trying this this refactoring because I felt like it was just too error prone. And really what we wanted in hindsight now, you know, future me, what we wanted was purity. Haskell gives it to us out of the box and and it's not even even hard. If you were going to do something like this in Java, you would have to take your data structures and put const everywhere and and final and and then that that kind of percolates itself way down deep into even, you know, your capital D double data structures. You you almost want to have like a an immutable capital D double so that you you know that when you you get the reference to this thing, the person who got that reference isn't going to make a mistake and accidentally mutate it. In, in the wrong scenario. And so um, kind of injecting purity after the fact in Java, can it be done? Yes, but it would be very invasive and it would be a lot of work. And with Haskell, it's just, oh, make this thing a pure function rather than an IO function and, and you're done. So I didn't fully, fully understand how Haskell would have benefited that goal at the time but I, I knew that Java was unsatisfying in terms of the amount of guarantees that it would, it would be able to give me. And I, I specifically wanted the compiler to be giving me these guarantees. And simultaneously, I was also, because I'm a, a computer nerd, wanting a new language to learn. And... I looked around, found you know, the top of the of my list of potential languages was Scala and Haskell. This was in the early days of Reddit, in the early days of the programming Reddit, back when it was a, a really high signal to noise venue. And uh, I had found out about Haskell from there and I didn't know a whole lot about it, but it seemed like this really different and difficult language to learn. And so I played around with Scala a little bit, played around with Haskell a little bit, and I actually ended up choosing Haskell intentionally for the reason that it struck me as the hardest. And that's that's a little bit of a life philosophy of mine that has emerged. I, I, I made made use that criteria back then, but 
in the intervening years, it has emerged as a more a more durable philosophy that I I would highly recommend. I guess I guess the the famous poem "Road Not Traveled" kind of hints at this same philosophy of life of of take the less the less popular thing, but. Um, less popular is often correlated with more difficult, but I would like to specifically refine that idea too. When you have a, a choice between two things and you really can't tell the difference, pick the harder one, pick the one that's going to stretch you more. And that was actually the, the conscious reason that I chose Haskell back then. So would you now say that, uh, there's a sort of Haskell Scala showdown in, uh, where the criteria is, difficulty of learning and that Haskell is the more difficult or would you say that has changed? That is a good question. Um, I guess now I'm my, my focus has changed a bit because I'm a lot more interested in, in commercial software, building production systems, delivering them with, with higher confidence and lower cost and in less time. Those are the things that, that, are the top of my motivations at the moment. And I don't, so yeah, I don't know that I would, I would even want to give an answer on is Scala harder or is Haskell harder in, in a sense, Scala is maybe not harder because it still gives you all of these OO access to all of the OO paradigms. It was intentionally a multi-paradigm language. And that was that was their design choice, and they had reasons for it. Um, Haskell, of course, doesn't give you those, and so it kind of forces you into its its uh, mode of thinking, which at the time, back then, for me, was was new and novel and and a big a big intellectual challenge. So, so I don't know. Maybe maybe you can't say, oh, this is more difficult or not, and and it probably depends on the context that you're talking about. But for me, at the time, I felt like. I would be more stretched and I would, I would uh, expand my, my thinking more if I picked Haskell and, and I did. Nice. So I don't, uh, I'm not an expert there in uh, the timeline of Scala, but I seem to recall it being, I mean, it's definitely a much more recent language to come into existence relative to Haskell. What, was it like 2009 or so that you were? I think this was probably 2006, seven, eight, somewhere. By by 2008, I was fairly solidly pursuing Haskell. So I think I was starting to look look into the two probably a few years before that. Got it. So take the story now from there. Did you get an opportunity to employ Haskell professionally? Not at first. Um, I... I changed jobs, went to work for another defense contractor, and was basically doing Haskell in my spare time. Then I I had another kind of significant project that, that was a step function up in my Haskell learning was a small web app that I wanted to build for myself. And I started off building it in PHP with Drupal, oddly enough. And the reason was I wanted this app for myself. I wanted to use it. And so I wanted to deliver it so that so that I could get the benefits of, of having it and using it. And PHP and Drupal, at the, at the time, I was not a web developer at all. I was solidly in the domain of backend programming. 
I had been been uh, done a lot of time doing chess programming and similar kinds of uh, back end game game bots and very very not involved in front end and user facing stuff and so web was was this thing that I was like and eh, I don't know if I want to deal with all this complexity of HTML and CSS. But along came this this project that I really wanted for myself. And it just seemed like doing it in PHP was gonna be, I would be able to deliver it most quickly and get something that I could use. So that's what I, why I chose PHP for that project. And very quickly, it just started to collapse on itself. I did get it to a point where I could, I could maintain it. And it roughly, it ended up being a blog for me, just a personal blog for, for stuff that I was doing. And, but it was a blog that had some structure to it. And so the first iteration was just a blog, an unstructured blog with maybe some tags and way, ways of organizing my posts for myself. But I really wanted to start embedding this fairly complex structure. And PHP just was not a great language for doing that. And so I thought, well, this is a good opportunity to try it, try this new Haskell language and use it for, for a fairly substantial project. And so I looked around for web frameworks. I found Hapstack at the time and started starting building this project with Hapstack. And I actually got something that worked. But I had no, it, this was such a huge, huge stretch for me in upping my Haskell skills. I, I learned so much. And I believe, Robin, that's where I first uh, started interacting with you in the in the Hapstack community. And uh, built that thing, got it working. That was great. Ended up getting kind of uh, frustrated with the state of, of Haskell Web Frameworks. Hapstack was the only one, only game in town documentation wasn't great. It took me a long time to figure things out. And uh, from there, I ended up deciding to, along with Greg Collins, write Snap, write our own framework. We thought, we debated long and hard, like, should we should we just contribute to Hapstack or should we start something new? The standard, the standard uh, trope of engineers starting new things when maybe they don't need to, the XKCD, you know, there were 10 standards and now there's 11 now, all of that kind of thing. We, we definitely took that into account and we didn't want to go down that path and, and uh, like redo all of that work without good reasons. And in the end, we decided that we had good reasons. Um, the Hapstack web server was was built on lazy I.O. and the rage at the time was iterates. And we thought that there needed to be a Haskell web server that was built with this um, iterate model so that it would have constant memory usage, constant space streaming. And we so that's ultimately why we decided to build Snap and uh, do our own thing. Around that time, I found a Haskell job opening in New York City with a small company. And I think there was the only other Haskell company that I was aware of at the time was Galois. And just kind of on a whim, I thought, oh, let me just interview for this. Interviewed for it. And I thought, you know, you can always say no. Well, in this case, that wasn't true because I kind of unexpectedly got the offer from them. And 
all of a sudden realized that there's no way I could say no to this. <laughs> and uh, so ended up taking that job, got in, into full-time professional Haskell development in, in 2010. And fortunately, I've been able to do that ever since. So I'm going to interject now with my own stories that intertwine with this. So uh, there's three interesting intertwinings. First of all, yeah, you and I, Doug, met via the perhaps Haskell, Hapstack mailing list or something. IRC um, channel or one, one of those, yeah. Something like that. And we, we connected on other things too. We were considering doing a project together that in retrospect uh, might have been a good choice. I think it couldn't happen because of whatever other thing was going on in right. our lives at the time. But um, we sort of made friends over that, but then parted ways. Interestingly, you know, you mentioned that you'd done some sort of game type backend things uh, just in your description just now in terms of hobbies. But I've since been um, in the real world subject to the to a coding test in which your gaming, uh, which you devised actually, oh, yes. in and uh, and therefore had to had to do one. And then uh, subsequently, I also. Um, used your gaming related product manager um, like ah. uh, brain teaser to sort of structure an interview process for for product managers. so I've so those are like two interesting intertwinings that you and I have had from from your story and then uh, and then there's the third one, which is a very interesting which is that I eventually ended up in that job, I think, that you you took. Because at some point later, many years later, you departed from that job and they had an opening. And I sort of ended up in a proc, not exactly, but I mean, sort of in the same um, same company, I think. I mean, Right. Not- yeah. Yeah. I think I remember that. Yeah. Um, so this is very interesting. You paved the way for me in a variety of ways. And the fact that you had independently discovered things that uh, I was discovering sort of legitimized them for me. So just thank you for, for doing that, actually. Oh, awesome. Great to hear that. Yeah, those are interesting pieces of trivia for the audience. Actually. The Haskell community is a, a very small world. Well, it, I guess so. Um, but growing rapidly, because now there's many interested persons doing Haskell, even professionally. Um, tell the story now from there, because at this point, you're um, a leader in the community and professionally, you're director of engineering at Cadena. I assume they're using Haskell there. Uh, yes, yes, we are. Okay. So can you tell us about the, the sort of um, more recent uses of functional programming in your profession uh, where is it being used and is it working yeah so was was at this small hedge fund for a while in new york and i think one of the main reasons that i got hired there was my involvement with snap it, and and i don't actually think we had released snap when the the job offer came in i think we were just starting to talk about it on a few internet forums and some of the people in the company had been following them and were were vaguely aware of it so so yeah my work on snap almost certainly got me that first job Uh, i think i think that's pretty pretty clear and was there for several years it was really really great place was able to learn a lot of course i learned a ton working on Snap as well, collaborating with other people on the internet with different 
different backgrounds, different experiences. This is by far the most important thing I can recommend to anyone wanting to get into Haskell or or any non-traditional language for that matter is work with other people. Whatever it is you have to do, open source software is the obvious suggestion there, but but that's not the only way you can work with other people, but work with other people because the space of things that you can do with a programming language, especially a programming language as expressive and sophisticated as Haskell, is so large, you can't possibly explore them all yourself. You just can't. No matter how smart you are, you're just not going to. And so working with other people is is hugely, hugely important, I think, in um, building building a career in these areas. Um, so yeah, I was, I was at that company for a while, then got a really attractive opportunity with another company called Sue Stone, also based in New York. And I was, Sue Stone was just starting up at the time. I was employee number one. They had had a system that was, uh, in production with fortune 500 clients serving, serving large amounts of, uh, requests per day and went to Sue Stone worked at Sue Stone for a while, um, got into like a data data visualization and anal- analytics project at one point. And somewhere along the lines there, we decided to build a front end and started off in Java or excuse me, JavaScript. And because that was just the obvious thing, it was, it was quick and dirty. We were just trying to prototype, get something out. And again, we have a, a similar story here. This this new data viz tool that we were building for our internal use, the JavaScript front end, it got got pretty pretty uh, capable in a in not too long of a time, and then it just started to get so difficult to maintain. And some of this is certainly on me because I was not an expert JavaScript programmer, but. I was a solid programmer, and and so I certainly was able to appreciate generic code patterns that are that are language agnostic. But it just became very very difficult to manage, and any time we added a new feature, it ended up causing we we spent more time fixing regressions than than we were um, time moving forward and and creating new features and capabilities, and so we ended up rewriting the front end in Haskell. At the time, we decided to use Haste. Haste was one of the Haskell to JavaScript options and uh, rewrote the front end in Haskell. One of my coworkers did that, actually. And that helped us get a good bit further in the evolution of the front end. Interesting anecdote. There were, at, the, at the beginning of that project, we we had targeted one database Postgres. And then we d- we knew that if we w- were gonna make significant use of it, we were gonna have to support multiple database backends. So one of my coworkers went and over a weekend rewrote or generalized the whole database system so that it would be a multi-backend system. And it literally compiled the first time. 
and it and it compiled and or 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 it worked the first time he got it compiling i think was was what it was and it was a very substantial change probably 1500 lines big big sweeping change in this whole system worked the first time the the commit message said the godlike refactoring because we were all so blown away at at how how uh, surprising it was that it just worked which i know that that's a a maybe overstated fallacy um sufficiently complex software does not work the first time you you get it to compile it just that's just the world is too complex for that but there's enough of a truth there which is why people keep saying it and and we saw that very clearly in that project um but yeah we so we had the front end in haste that helped but it was still difficult to maintain haste was too far from GHC. And so we had to re reproduce a lot of code. We couldn't use ASON for JSON parsing out of the box. We had to write a haste specific uh, JSON parser and we had to make it compatible with ASON. And so there were a number of things that, that really were not as efficient as they could be. We didn't have FRP at the time. So we had to basically do poor man's FRP system for, for reactive programming and for really making, avoiding, avoiding the big mess of callbacks that you get in user interfaces. And so a while later, we ended up porting the front end to Reflex. And we, so it's basically a Haskell to Haskell port. Haste is close enough to Haskell that we can, for the purposes of this conversation, consider it Haskell. And Reflex was using GHCJS, and the difference there was that GHCJS is much, much closer to actual matching of GHC in all of its quirks. And it turns out that the difference, I would say that haste is not far from GHC, but, but that small difference ended up making a huge difference in, in how much code we were able to reuse. And so... In the refactoring from haste to GHCJS and Reflex, we reduced our code by 40% in the front end code. So huge, huge success. And we were able to then go and make much more complex front end functionality and, and evolve the front end greatly after we made that switch. So that was a really productive switch. Since then, I've been doing a lot of front-end work in Haskell, and I've done it at, at several different jobs. I, I ended up going to Formation, where they had a, a product for Starbucks. We built the front-end for that system in, in uh, Haskell with Reflex and GHCJS, and I was just talking to some people there recently, and it's still in use at Starbucks. Um, I, I think it's probably been responsible for something north of a billion dollars in revenue lift for for Starbucks over the course of its use. And so um, pretty, pretty successful story there. And then now I'm at Kadena and we are um, a blockchain company, but we have a number of other tools and we have our block explorer that I wrote in Haskell, which is primarily a front end front end uh, tool. And we also have a wallet, which is a desktop app. And we, we ship a Mac app, a Linux app, 
and we don't have native Windows yet, but we get Windows via an OVA virtual machine. And that is all written in Haskell with uh, GHCJS for the front end. Or actually, it's, it's GHCJS only if we compiled it to a web app, which currently we don't have it deployed as a web app. So, so the desktop apps are being, being built with GHC, but um, it's, it's all using the same, the same infrastructure. It's quite a story, actually. I mean, you, you have uh, more than many people I know, a long professional history of functional programming use and Haskell use in, in the profession. I'm glad it's going well. What would you say to uh, sort of a VP of engineering type of person who's considering um, a new project? Say they're, they're doing a greenfield kind of project. Um, and traditionally, they've been working with, I don't know, the Javas of the world, maybe C++ or something like that. And they, they want to consider functional programming. What would you say to that person? I, would, I think it really depends a lot on context. I think one of the big things that I've learned through my career is there are no absolutes. Obviously, I have... I have made my career in the functional programming world and specifically with Haskell, but it's not right for everybody. If, if you don't have uh, the, the experience or the, uh, the, the connections to the community, you might have a hard time building, building something with Haskell. I don't think a, a leader with zero Haskell experience and zero Haskell connections should necessarily choose that for a team. Can it be done? Yes. But I think you need to find the right people. And, and if you do find, find the right people and you can get into this place where, where uh, I think where, where I would say that it would be good for you to use Haskell, then I, I think that Haskell has a lot of, of advantages and a lot of benefits to offer. I, that's why I choose it. I think I can write software more reliably in often less time, but in if you can convince me that it might not be less time, then uh, it's going to be very difficult to convince me that it's not going to be more time over the long term. And that's usually what I'm concerned about. I'm not really concerned about throwing out prototypes and then just not caring what happens. I'm interested in software that gets released and maintained over the long term and grows and evolves. And if you're if you don't intend to grow and evolve a piece of software, if it's just if that if that blog, that PHP blog was all I ever needed out of it, if I didn't want to go down the structured path and if I didn't have vague ideas of, of potentially wanting to make that into a business, then maybe the PHP thing would have been fine for me. I, so I'm. I, I like to think I'm pretty, pretty realistic, and in terms of of when when you do and don't use Haskell, at Kadena we have a number of tools that that aren't Haskell. Guess what? They tend to be small. They tend to be rapidly thrown thrown together prototypes for tools that we needed at, on short notice, and perhaps the the Haskell engineers on our team were already committed doing other things. So there's, there's lots and lots of variables involved here. There's, there's uh, the knowledge and experience of the team and the people that you have available, the knowledge and experience of your leadership, the, 
there are there are certainly other places where I wouldn't do do a Haskell front end. I, I worked briefly for um, a fashion company called V Files that had a a front end, and they were much more concerned about their user base being able to use this on mobile devices. And guess what? The Haskell runtime compiled to JavaScript is is somewhat heavy, and and so if if mobile devices are your target, and you're not going to go down the native app route, if if mobile web is specifically what you want, then maybe Haskell isn't the right decision. So so it's a pretty nuanced conversation, and I'm definitely not going to be the person here that says Haskell or die. Um, I'm I'm much more interested in succeeding at whatever software I'm trying to build and delivering value for for the company or whatever entity I'm building it for. So as a leader uh, of functional programming teams and Haskell teams in particular, what would you say to the world of um, you know the, those contributing to the Haskell ecosystem, whether by libraries or compiler or just the community involvement? What would you say you need from them uh, to make your life better, to make the whole like industrial use of Haskell or functional programming more compelling? Oh, wow. That is a big question. Um, let's see. I think there's two things that jump to my, that stand out to me as being pretty, pretty significant factors at the moment. And first, before I hit those, let me hit one that I think is commonly mentioned as a factor that I do not think is a factor, which is hiring. Oh, you won't be able to hire enough people. That has not been my experience. At Formation, I interviewed dozens, if not well over a hundred candidates for our Haskell roles. And in the time I was there, I think we grew the Haskell team by something on the order of 20 to 25 people. 25, 30 person development team, that's that's a sizable development team. You can do a lot with that many developers. And it starts to become a management challenge. I recently commented on Hacker News, this topic came up. Someone was saying, oh, you can't hire 100 Haskell developers. That's not true. That's not my experience. I think if if I needed to hire 100 Haskell developers and if Formation had needed to hire 100 Haskell developers, we easily could have because we hired 30 without lowering our bar. And and uh, there were plenty of, of strong candidates that we could have gotten to just fill out the numbers. Now, I would... I would strongly disagree with th those that say, oh, I need to hire a thousand Haskell developers. I, I don't know of any projects that I can, that I've been involved with or can think of where, where you would need a, a thousand Haskell developers. But I would say that if you do, for whatever reason, if you can construct a situation where I will agree with you that you do need a Haskell, a thousand Haskell developers, then maybe Haskell isn't the right thing because finding a thousand Haskellers is going to be is going to be uh, probably not very feasible. But finding a hundred is definitely feasible. It'll take it'll take a, a good amount of of work, but they're out there. So. Just needing to hire pure numbers of developers, I don't, do not think is very often a, a reason to not use Haskell. But the, the places where it is challenging, number one for me is Haskell leadership. 
I think that the in in the engineering or the software engineering career across the board, a lot of us software engineers don't want to worry about management. We want to write code. And my my mentor at my first job back at Northrop Grumman, he was like this. He was in his 60s, very, very wise, experienced, and forward-thinking developer because he was one of the Java people, one of the most prolific coders in the whole, in the whole several thousand person site. He absolutely did not want to go into management. And he would tell me, he's like, ah, oh, don't, don't go down that path. Just stay in the code. It's the way. So I think a lot of software engineers don't want to become management. And my sense based on my personal experience in the Haskell community is that Haskell software engineers may be even more that way than uh, all software engineers. I think there are a lot of Haskellers that don't want to go into management and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that whatsoever. Management is very much a separate skill. And, and I would say it can, it can be a superset it, you can you can leverage all of your engineering skills also in the job of leading a team of engineers. But I think that the Haskell community is limited right now by lack of engineering leaders. And that does not necessarily mean that that engineering leaders have to be people managers and have to have one-on-ones with their people and and do performance reviews and all of that thing. My my definition of engineering leadership is a bit broader than that, and it, it extends to non-managing engineering leaders. But at the moment, I think that the Haskell community is limited by the lack of engineering leadership, and that really is a function of time. I've I've decided to take the the leadership path, and I'm liking it so far. Uh, it's definitely not a foregone conclusion that I or anyone else would have would have liked this path. And so, but it's really just a personal growth. I think we're limited by the the rate at which humans grow and get experience here. So so there's not necessarily a lot we can do about it except to try to um, like provide places where people can learn from existing people that have leadership experience so that we can grow grow our community. If you want to hire that team of, of 30, 50, or 100 Haskell developers, guess what? You're going to need some management and some leadership in, in some way, shape, or form. People that say, oh, you, they're, I want a flat organization. A flat organization is a myth. If you have a flat organization on paper, what you actually have is implicit hierarchy that is is kind of unstated and evolves. And maybe that can work, but it's still there. And so I think this is this is one really important factor. And then and and probably more controversially, I think we don't have a great commitment to backwards compatibility in terms of libraries and APIs across the whole as a community. I'm absolutely making generalizations here. And this is this is a controversial enough topic that I don't want to like die on this hill or or stake any kind of flag in the sand, but I will definitely say that I and my teams have wasted 
some meaningful amounts of time just trying to keep up with the Joneses of this library upgrade because of some backwards compatibility change. And this library no longer supports the older version of this other library that made a big breaking change. And these things do translate into time and energy spent by software teams. And uh, I have seen it firsthand. Uh, like there's, there's, individual situations where I know for a fact that days have been lost because of these kinds of upgrades. And it's, it's a tough balance. Like the, the Haskell community has a very strong desire to find the right abstraction and the right solution. And guess what? If you want to evolve arbitrarily in the direction of, of the perfect and, and the correct, you are going to have to break backwards compatibility. But there's a balance to be had there. And I don't know where that balance is, but I suspect we're a little bit on the too fast and too breaking, too, breaking too many things side of it than uh, would be ideal for commercial users. Am I surprised? No. I picked this language because it has a really strong theoretical underpinnings and and it it is where the a lot of the cutting edge of programming language research is being done. So it's the same argument as as people who complain about compile times. Are are uh, fast compile times better for team productivity? Yes. Absolutely. But I picked Haskell because I want to offload work that humans normally do to the compiler. So there's there's some non-zero amount of sacrifice I'm going to have to make in compile times there. It's just it comes with the territory. And you might be able to argue that being more research oriented and less production backwards compatibility stability oriented comes with the territory of choosing Haskell as well. Maybe it does. I would, I would like it if we were a little bit more uh, on the stable side, but uh, that's, that's a tough conversation. And, uh, and I don't know that, that uh, anyone can even really impose it because it kind of emerges from, from the decisions of everyone from GHC contributors to Cabal contributors to, uh, you know, core library contributors all the way down through the ecosystem to, to the, the low level or the lowest levels of the, of the packages that I depend on. Uh, these things matter all the way up the chain. And, and so it is pretty like, how can we, how can we make anyone do anything here? You know, even if I could wave a magic wand and say, oh, hey, GHC, Change your change your uh, behavior and never break core lib the 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 base libraries that ship with GHC. Never break those. Even if I could do that, would that impact the rest of the community? Probably not. So, I don't know what the answer is here, but I do think that the commercial world would be served by a bit more stability in the community. Well, saying so in a forum like this uh, maybe is a first step. Because people can hear that and just understand that you're pain, I guess. Yeah, hopefully. So that's a good start. Think now toward the future, Doug. What, okay. what, is, the, what is the future of 
the functional programming world, and you can answer maybe for the Haskell community too, what, what does it look like? Where should it go? What should it change? I mean, I've already asked that a little bit, but where is it going? What are the interesting things that are happening? Are there other competing languages? What do you think of these Haskell adjacent things? Do you think there's a future there? Is Haskell in fact branching into, you know, pure script and it's, or it's, are its ideas sort of appearing in um, TypeScript? I don't know. What's going on? What is the future of Haskell? I don't know. <laughs> now I know that's not the answer you're looking for. Um, one thing that I've said for a long time is I think that the ideas behind Haskell are the future of programming. And I've worded it that way very intentionally because I don't know whether Haskell is still going to be used or around or anything in five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. It'll probably be around in, in five years because, because uh, software just doesn't move that quickly. But 20, 20, 50 years, I have no idea. But I am very confident that the ideas behind it, the idea of purity and pure functions is here to stay. The manifestation that that will take in programming languages and the extent to which it will be adopted by the mainstream, I think is very much an open question. There's certainly a lot of aspects about Haskell that I think are probably probably a bit much in terms of mainstream adoption to expect expect uh, the rank and file devs world worldwide to adopt. So there's there's going to be some tension there. I've chosen this language because it's productive for me. Maybe it won't be productive for everybody. So. I think I think we're we're on the forefront of a lot of these ideas. I think there's kind of there there may always be a, a bit of a divide between the masses and between the Haskellers and that may be for no other reason than for the fact that Haskellers love to be exploring new things and if if uh, X percent of Haskell gets adopted into the mainstream, then Hasslers are probably gonna gonna head off and and look to explore new ideas, and that's great. Dependent types certainly the obvious the obvious uh, one of the obvious big candidates in the room for for areas of research going forward. I don't think it's it's got the power to weight ratio especially in haskell to to really um be something that we just use on a daily basis um in my personal experience we have not yet fully leveraged the value to be had commercially from haskell 98 haskell 2010 pure functions and adts those things ah What's the line from from uh, Remember the Titans? Just like Novocaine, it always works. Don't get, you know, it's the coach. Don't get fancy with your playbook. Just do the reliable things that we know are, are solid, easy to understand. In software, complexity is the enemy. 
And if you think you understand it today, but it's kind of complicated, when you yourself come back in a year, guess what? That complexity is going to come back to bite you unless you're you're one of the very, very rare few that has has some kind of photographic memory for these things and, and just crazy high recall. But um, yeah, complexity, I, I think complexity kind of come, we're always pushing the boundaries of how much complexity we can handle. I used to say that, oh, if a language, if you had to have design patterns for your language, that was that was a flaw in the language. I don't think that anymore. I think that no matter how powerful your language is, humans are always going to want to uh, push push the capability of those abstractive powers to the point where now you've got patterns there. I, I think that it just kind of keeps on growing to meet the capacity of, of whatever the language has in terms of expressiveness. And so you really have to make an extremely conscious effort to keep complexity in check and focus on writing the simplest possible thing to solve the problem at hand. And I think this is a challenge for beginners, intermediates, and very experienced Haskell developers alike. Thank you, Doug. Mighty Byte for joining me today. This has been great. I appreciate you coming. Thanks a lot, Robin. Pleasure being here. 